This episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast is brought to you by Music Box Films, presenting Lost Illusions, the César award-winning lush adaption of the classic André de Balzac novel. When an aspiring poet joins a cynical team of journalists in 19th century Paris, he soon discovers that the written word can be an instrument of both beauty and deceit. Now playing in select theaters, including Film at Lincoln Center. Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week we're featuring a special programmer's preview of Beware of Dario Argento, our 20 film retrospective taking place Friday through June 29th. Join FLC programmers Maddie Whittle and Tyler Wilson in an overview of the master of Gaello's Ouvre. Explore the lineup featuring 17 world premieres of new restorations, the North American premiere of Dark Glasses, 3D and 35mm screenings, and in-person appearances from Argento himself at filmlink.org slash Argento. After the preview, listen to a Q&A from the 59th New York Film Festival with director Apicha Pong Wera Sethical and actress Tilda Swinton on their main slate selection, Memoria, moderated by NYFF artistic director Dennis Lim. Collective and personal ghosts hover over every frame of Memoria, Somehow the grandest yet most becalmed of a Pichapong where Seth Dedicals works. Inspired by the Thai director's own memories and those of people he encountered while traveling across Colombia, the film follows Jessica, played by a wholly immersed Tilda Swinton, an expat botanist visiting her hospitalized sister in Bogota. While there, she becomes ever more disturbed by an abyssal sound that haunts her sleepless nights and bleary-eyed days, compelling her to seek help in identifying its origins. Thus begins a personal journey that's also a historical excavation. In a film of profound serenity that, like Jessica's sound, lodges itself in the viewer's brain as it traverses city and country, climaxing in an extraordinary extended encounter with a rural farmer that exists on a precipice between life and death. Join our special engagement with Memoria, playing for one week only through June 23rd. Get tickets at filmlink.org memoria. Hello, my name is Tyler Wilson. I'm one of the programmers here at Film at Lincoln Center. And I'm Maddie. I'm another one of the programmers. Very happy to be here. We're here today to uh, speak to you all about Beware of Dario Argento, our upcoming series celebrating the uh, uh, incomparable director's body of work. The retrospective begins this Friday, June 17th. Uh, It runs through the 29th. uh, And it's co-presented with our our partners at Cinecita in Rome, uh, who've created a brand new restorations of 17 of Argento's feature films uh, from his uh, 1970 feature debut up to uh, 2007's Mother of Tears, uh, his uh, his final entry in the uh, Three Mothers trilogy, uh, the other two being Suspiria and Inferno. And each of these restorations were overseen by Argento himself. So I, I think it'll be a worthwhile opportunity to either discover or you know rediscover these films in our theater. I guess if seeing these new films anew isn't incentive enough, uh, Dario will be here in person to uh, present some of his, I think, most influential films and personal favorites, uh, as well as the uh, 
the North American premiere of his latest film, Dark Glasses, uh, over the opening weekend. Um, I, I guess just to run through those, um, specifically, he'll be taking part in Q&As for his uh, seminal feature debut, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, on Friday, June 17th. Um, and that same evening, he'll introduce uh, his uh, uh, gleefully insane 1982 film, Tenebrae. Um, on Saturday, we'll uh, have a double bill of uh, I, perhaps the two films that are widely regarded as his masterpieces, Deep Red, uh, for which he'll do a, a Q&A, uh, followed by Suspiria, which he'll introduce uh, in the 9 p.m. slot. Um, and then on Sunday, uh, he'll join Maitland McDonough, um, an Argento expert who wrote, um, I think, the, you know, the groundbreaking book about him, um, Broken Mirrors, Broken Minds, um, for a discussion around his 1985 film Phenomena, uh, starring a young Jennifer Connelly. Um, and then he uh, caps off his in-person appearance with uh, an introduction ahead of his brand new film, Dark Glasses. Yeah, it's going to be an action-filled opening weekend, I would say. Um, we're extremely excited to be welcoming Dario in person. Uh, originally, uh, we had looked at an earlier window programming this retrospective uh, but the priority was to bring Dario and uh, that led us to this timing and uh, we couldn't be more excited um, to, to hear the master speak in person uh, in the Walter Reed in front of uh, these brand new restorations um, so and then the, if you if you're not able to come uh, for those initial Q&A screenings um, all of the films will be shown more than once, except for Dark Glasses, which uh, you you have to either make the the Sunday night screening or wait and watch it when it uh, gets a gets its U.S. release, which will be coming soon. If you haven't had a chance to check out the tickets yet, check, check out the timeline, the schedule. Um, you can go to filmlink.org/argento uh, to find all the information about what's screening when, uh, where when. Daria will be uh, in attendance and um, you can check out we're currently uh, our all access passes are sold out for the series but there will be new passes released uh, in the coming days so keep an eye out um, for those yeah um, yeah and as you said this this retrospective has been I guess a, a couple years in the making at this point um, and I think just in general, uh, um, a retrospective that is um, as near complete as ours, I think is, is very much uh, long overdue for Argento in the city. Um, I, it, but it's, it's strange because I think New York, um, at least for as long as I've been living here, has been celebrating Argento in you know, a number of, of different ways. You know, there have been um, you know, more condensed retrospectives for him there are always these thematic series that, uh, you know, feature some of his films. And um, I think it, it's safe to say, you know, films like uh, Suspiria and Deep Red screen, you know, perennially. Um, but like on a, on a wider view, I don't know, his, his, and his work has been like in, presented in so many varied contexts, which make him, I think, a pretty interesting figure, you know. His films show up as midnight screenings that are you know, presented in genre film festivals, but they've also been uh, 
premiered in the likes of Cannes, the Berlinale, La Carna, where he's also served, uh, you know, as, as a juror and or been presented with, you know, lifetime achievement awards. Um, you, you know, he, I don't know, he's arguably like one of the greatest horror filmmakers. Um, you know, the, the uh, now 21 films that, that um, he's written uh, and directed, I think, you know, constitute a really fascinating, extended, uh, very dense, reflection on the genre but I, I think you know his his influence and, and appeal among so many dissimilar audiences of so many different you know generations and you know within such varied exhibition contexts I think make him really one of the most uh, uh, interesting and, and important figures in in contemporary cinema so we're really you know pleased to honor him with this retrospective um, which I think, you know, will offer people the opportunity to, you know, really fully appreciate and, and, and grapple with his films, you know, so many of which don't, don't really screen often uh, in a cinema, um, which, which is, of course, a shame. And uh, I have a professional obligation to say this, but I really do think an Argento film requires, you know, the treatment of being projected on a, on a large screen with, you know, incredible sound. In, in, a, in, dark. A dark, in a dark room with a bunch of people who will undoubtedly like audibly react to various moments in his film. So I, I think I think these screenings will be uh, really memorable for people. And I think it's uh, especially exciting to be um, hosting a retrospective that really does cover the breadth of his career, because I think, you know, as you said, Tyler, so, uh, so certain of his films are so beloved and so celebrated. And I think it's easy to lose sight of the forest of his filmography for these individual trees. And working on this series has given me a chance, I think, to look at that landscape, look at the, the terrain of his entire filmography and reconsider some of the lesser seen films in connection with the, the, the sort of linear trajectory of his career and how his relationships with his collaborators developed with, with uh, Goblin and the composition of his soundtracks with uh, production designers who he worked with repeatedly uh, with, with uh, Daria Nicolodi, who uh, he worked with first on Deep Red and then uh, collaborated multiple subsequent films uh, and was of course personally um, in a relationship with as well. And uh, then later, uh, when his daughter, Azia Argento, began acting, uh, they embarked on a kind of uh, sustained creative collaboration that I think has been, um, you know, in his more recent films, seeing those films in sequence or in, you know, uh, in one concentrated setting uh, really allows you to see kind of how these creative relationships unfolded these collaborations are i think such an important aspect of you know following the trajectory of his like sort of creative evolution um you mentioned like his you know you know him um, working with um daria you know deep red and then writing suspiria together and, and and so on their collaborations and then um working with, you know, his daughter, but, you know, his, his family was a part of his films from the start. His, you know, his dad was uh, heavily involved with the film industry and um, was, 
I understand fairly uh, important in in helping him, you know, move from from screenwriting into directing his first feature. You know, his his, his he and his father produced, I think, at least. Well, his father produced his films, I think, up until um, perhaps opera. Well, or at least I know he passed away during opera. And you know, his brother Claudio um, also worked on his films in a number of, of different capacities. So it's it's really interesting to see how uh, to see how his family is is sort of reflected into his work and how important um, they end up being to uh, the identity of some of his films and how how some of them kind of shift or mark. Uh, changes in in sort of his uh, you know creative obsessions and and in style. Yeah, and then to to um, you mentioned creative obsessions. I think there's sort of also a, a an element of tracking motifs that is possible in a full retrospective or a near full retrospective uh, that you you can't get when you're experiencing his films in in sort of isolated contexts. Um, the uh, even all the way up through his newest film, Dark Glasses, which uh, I'm excited for people to see. I think it's in conversation with his early works in some really uh, fun ways. And, and there's a sense of, of sort of almost lightness to this movie that feels like a commentary of sorts on his, you know, the roots of his career and, and everything he's done in the last 50 years. Um, and I think... Just I, I'm just I, I'm excited to have him present to be able to pick his brains about some of these connections, about these through lines um, that maybe aren't always um, offered up in such a clear context. Yeah, I'm I'm also excited to present, you know, dark classes and, and especially to have him uh, to speak ahead of it. it you know, it's. I, don't know, I think a lot of people are going to be excited for it. it you know, he's returning to, you know. Uh, giallo after a, a 10-year hiatus um, and I think the film certainly shows him doing exactly what he does best like Maddie like you said there is sort of an unusual a tonal shift in this film um, I mean yeah he's we're, he's still pulling from the same chaotic brutal mind there are you know absolutely insane uh, sequences in this film uh, especially featuring uh, dogs uh, but yeah there this there's also you know an unusual sensitivity that that he's paying to his characters in particular I think like you know the vic the victims that he is you know that he has been for decades you know using and abusing in this genre um so yeah it's it you you definitely see a very different side of him in this film that I don't think we have yet in any of his uh, previous films. In part, probably because, uh, I mean, I think something that's significant is that the, the sort of detective partnership that is a model that he's used narratively before and sort of two, two people teaming up to get to the bottom of a heinous mystery uh, this time involves like one of the two parties in this pairing is a, a small boy. It's a child who uh, lost his parents in a terrible accident uh, to the mysterious figure who they are trying to track. And I think that element is, uh, is new. It, there's a new dynamic that's brought in by having one of these uh 
figures being embodied by a child. And I'm curious to to talk to him a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I think this is a film that he has been trying to make for a few decades now. I think at least uh, since the early 2000s. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, I mean, the film the film is about uh, you know a sex worker who um, goes blind after after a car accident that's caused by this this killer. And and like Maddie, you mentioned like sort of tracking these motifs um, throughout his 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 film. Uh, filmography and uh you know I, I think like one of one of those themes is you know seeing and 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 sightlessness which which I think he has been uh seeing and sightlessness and that you know uh, how perception is 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 fallible you know uh that you know we've seen this as early as his his first feature so it's really fascinating to see him still toying with these ideas uh you know in in the the 21st century and having fun I get the sense that there's just a lot of there's a life force to this film that uh suggests that he's he's still just having fun playing these games with us um should we uh maybe highlight a few other uh films uh, in the retrospective sure I uh would call attention to an outlier uh that I was was less familiar with previously and and um i'm excited for people to see in the context of this retrospective it's called the five days or the five days in milan uh it's a departure for him in that it is uh sort of a, a period piece and uh, it's been described as a dramedy it or and also as kind of a dark farce um and it's set in the mid 1800s in milan and it's very politically uh, attuned to um, the sort of the dynamics that were at play in this period, the years of lead in Italian history. Um, and uh, it's it's a different it shows a different side of Argento. It, he it, he made it in the early '70s, right before sort of turning back to giallo with Deep Red. Um, and it's not very widely seen. And uh, I I think that it. Is, well, it's doing something very different in, in a lot of ways from his sort of broader project that we're accustomed to uh, thinking about and talking about with uh, the giallo turn, but also sort of more broadly supernatural horror. And um, it, I, I, I just, I think it's fodder for, for conversation and for maybe a re uh, looking through, looking at his better known works through the lens of a political consciousness that maybe isn't spelled out quite so explicitly elsewhere. Yeah, and it's, I guess it's also a reminder of, you know, Argento's roots. Uh, you know, he began as a film critic and then transitioned into screenwriting where, you know, he was, he wrote, you know, Once Upon a Time in the West with uh, Sergio Leone and, and Bernardo Bertolucci. And so uh, it's, yeah, it's, 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 a fa it's fascinating to like, you know, turn to this film within his career, which is, you know, such, like you said, Maddie, such an outlier. Um, I, I have never seen it um, because it is, you know, I've never been able to get a hold of a copy. So I look forward to seeing this in a, in a theater um, to finally, you know, enjoy it. Yeah, it's gonna, I think, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see the audience who this retrospective brings in as well. I, I imagine there are going to be a lot of devotees 
uh, of Argento's work, who may be discovering some of his lesser known films uh, for the first time. And then I hope that we there will also be uh, people who have never experienced an Argento film or, or maybe have never experienced one on a big screen. I uh, think that especially the films an opening weekend uh, are going to be great entry points um, into his filmography for anyone who hasn't already gotten their feet wet. Hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, there are, you know, folks who have like seen Deep Red, Suspiria, and perhaps have left it at that. And then I think, you know, there are these uh, ardent uh, devotees who have seen everything in in his, his body of work. So, uh, yeah, I, I think like with that, finding this, this middle ground for anyone interested in this series, um, uh, I, I, I'd want to shout out his, his debut feature from, from 1970, uh, which we're opening uh, the retrospective uh, with because not only was it, you know, uh, profoundly uh, significant in kicking off his uh, directorial career, it perhaps more importantly, uh, you know, fundamentally, you know, changed the landscape of horror in ways that I think the genre is still, you know, echoing, you know, decades later, you know, especially in his own body of work. Uh, this is his, you know, this is his first uh, Giallo film, you know, which is, I should, which you explain, I guess, is a, a particular, like, particularly kind of lurid, violent, uh, detective-esque murder mystery that emerged in, from Italy in, in, the, in the 60s, you know, most notably from, you know, Mario Bava, who had an undeniable influence on uh, Argento. The, the plot of The Bird with the Crystal Plumage uh, concerns uh, uh, an American writer who's, uh, you know, currently living and, and writing in Rome. Uh, I think he, he you know, most in the beginning, he has completed a book about the preservation of rare birds. Uh, and uh, while he's there walking one evening in the city, he witnesses uh, an attempted murder in an art gallery and subsequently becomes uh, obsessed with figuring out exactly what he saw one night as he's at first a suspect uh, in, in the attempted murder and then just becomes an active participant in the investigation uh, of who this, you know, attempted murderer was um, because at the same time all this is happening, there are a number of other brutal murders that are, are happening uh, throughout Rome. Um, but all that to say, uh, I think nearly everything uh, that we've come to identify as signatures of an Argento film are on, I think, uh, full display here with, I think, I guess, staggering confidence, uh, um, you know, from his, you know, clever use of color and, and understanding of, you know, what makes uh, an image really linger with you. Uh, you know, the, the iconic black gloves of the killer uh, are featured and originate in this film. Um, there's, and you know, of course, the, the, the fondling of, of weapons that, you know, recurs throughout his films. Uh, there's the, uh, there's a, a singular musical score um, written by, uh, you know, the great Ennio Morricone here, uh, you know, which plays such a like critical role to this film's atmosphere. Um, and, you know, his soundtracks throughout uh, his body of work become such a distinctive trait uh, of his films. Um, you know, 
there's also, you know, his unusual camera placement and all around, you know, uh, meticulous compositions. Um, so yeah, all of, and all of these, I think, formal elements are really bound up in, I would say fairly, still fairly uh, provocative, you know, expressions around, you know, of violence and trauma, you know, uh, psychoanalysis, which he leans heavily into with this film, uh, psychosis, uh, even uh, certain ideas around modern art that, you know, eventually he will, you know, pull apart all of these themes in really different directions with each subsequent feature. So I, I definitely think uh, anyone who is just partially uh, familiar with Dario Argento's body of work should should absolutely catch his uh, debut feature on opening night. And uh, he'll be, of course, doing a Q&A for that film. So yeah, please, uh, please join us. Uh, we're, we're very excited, as, as we keep saying, gearing up uh, for, for opening night this Friday and uh, for welcoming Dario all weekend long. It promises to be a great week and a half of Dario season. Anything else to add, Tyler? I, I would I would like to shout out Tenebrae, which Argento will introduce at 9 p.m. on Friday, June 17th. Uh, Tenebrae is Argento's return to uh, the giallo after his, you know, his forays into occult horror with Suspiria in, in, in Inferno. Um, and uh, it is, uh, in essence, I think, a, a film for all his haters. Uh <laughs> You know, the, the years of, I think, of being accused of, you know, making uh, immoral and misogynist films, I, I guess, reached a boiling point for him in 1982. And, and so um, he he acknowledges this criticism and, and I think expresses it uh, in his own brutal way with, with Tenebrae. Um, it, it, you know, it's sent very quickly on the plot. It centers on a, a successful, not so subtle Argento. Uh, esque novelist um, visiting Rome from New York, uh, and he is subsequently taunted by a killer who's reenacting the murders of his own books um, while he's promoting his latest novel called Tenebrae. It's a familiar premise to Argento, but at this point in his career, he is, I think, all but, you know, abandoned rational plotting uh, and is far more interested in constructing, I think, in uh, an altogether stranger kind of visual experience that is much more tapped into his, you know, fears and anxieties and, and frustrations. Uh, the themes and uh, stylistic hallmarks I'd mentioned in my, I think, Crystal Plumage are, uh, are all here in this film, but I think he takes them to uh, their most uh, excessive edges. Uh, so I, I, I highly recommend uh, catching that screening on Friday as well. Thanks again for being here. It's really great to have you back. Thank you. Um, in your introduction, Joe, you talked about this as a dream that both of you had had. I was wondering if you can just tell us when the dream started and also maybe tell us how that dream evolved to the film we saw tonight. It started from, I think, 2004 in Tropical Malady. You met when in you... Cannes when that showed? Yeah. You gave it a prize. You were in the jury, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you wanted to work together since 2004. Right, right. And then we did, you know, in, in other, other, other ways. Yeah. Project Short and 
uh, curated a film festival in Thailand together. Yeah. Mm. I'm just still in the movie. I'm sorry. I'm, I think <laughs> we I think we all are, but you know. So. It's um, always good to see the people. I just feel, uh, you say, when I was doing this in Thailand, it's it's, um, it's different to test it in the theater, mm-hmm. empty theater, and with the people. First time in Cannes, it, it, it make the movie different. Yeah, but you both watched it with the audience tonight, right? With this audience, yes. Why don't I ask you what you experienced in this room then? It's, I don't know, you feel the energy. It, it, it's about being together. And that, yeah. that's, yeah, that's more it's important. Yeah. So, okay, you started, you know, mm-hmm. wanting to work together 17 years ago. How did that idea take you to Colombia? Because you've worked outside Thailand in for your short and installation work, but you've never made a feature film outside Thailand. So... Maybe you can say a little bit of how you ended up in Colombia. Well, I, I'm always interested in Latin American culture and also the Amazon. Uh, so in, you know, when I was making Seminary uh, uh, of Splendor, um, that's 2015, you know, we met 14 and 15, um, the country was basically taken over by the military and I felt really urged to make a film uh, after that, but I think I had to make a political one because it it's, was really part of us, you know. But I couldn't because it's, it's too dangerous. And, and I feel like, okay, how about this dream? You know? uh, so in 2017, I had a chance to be in Cartagena Film Festival. Um, that's the northern of uh, Colombia. And they, they gave me a tribute, you know, and uh, on the award night, they um, had this clip of my past film, very well edited. And I, I feel very touched and I feel like, oh, this is like uh, my funeral. <laughs> I, I feel like, oh, okay, I'm officially old. And and it's, it's feel like the end of something. Yeah. And, and since I'm in Colombia and near the Amazon, I say, okay, okay, this might be a new chapter, you know, of, of uh, filmmaking practice. And I, I started to travel around Colombia for three months with different, different um, cities. And at that time, you know, before that and during the travel, uh, I was accompanied by this bang in my head. Uh, I, I found out later it's called exploding head syndrome. Uh, nobody know why, you know. And it, it happened in the morning, early morning. It's like bang, and and the sound like what Jessica tried to explain. Uh, so so, being in Colombia and, and talking to people, I started to say, hmm, might not integrated this into the experience, yeah, of of the journey, yeah. And then I I wrote to Tilda like. Hey, I think I found the place for our dream, and I think it's it's a place that um, is very expressive. The country, and and for us, it's it's such a a unique experience because it's 
there's many things that we don't know, and and the idea of not knowing is, is really precious. You know, we just embrace that. Yeah. So. Because when we started talking about uh, a sort of atmosphere, um, it was the atmosphere of being lost and being strangers. We knew very early that uh, because Joe's most of Joe's work had been in Thailand, uh, we didn't feel there was a way of infiltrating me into Thailand somehow. We couldn't we couldn't find a way of catching that. Um, and so we made a quite early agreement that we would find a place where we were both aliens. And, uh, and it was a bit of a search around the, the world. But what we were also looking for was a place that, that offered this sort of reverberation of trauma, which is something that Joe's work has always explored in Thailand and something that I've always really responded to being a Scot. Um, and, and I think a, a, an early bond in terms of atmosphere when we were thinking about what kind of atmosphere we wanted to find. And so Colombia offered that to us aliens, this sort of familiar, familiar feeling of, of, of the ability to be lost there was, was, was very uh, sort of welcoming. <laughs> How did that shape your process? Did, did it change your work process from what it usually is? Just the fact of being in alien surroundings, both of you? Yes, totally. Because when I was making film in Thailand, I, I had my roots, I had my own memories, and I used those and along with my actors' memories. You know? But in Colombia, there's no root, and so I more like a sponge, you know, absorbing memory. And I focus on hospitals, actually, because I'm really comfortable in that space. You know, I, I grew up in the hospital because my parents were doctors. And um, so I, I visit uh, basically hospital and mental hospital around Colombia and listen to people and um, I don't know, and try to to understand. Did some of that make make its way into the film? A, no, maybe more like emotion mm. part, you know. A, but there are many things that all in the film are out of hospital. The experiences that that I encounter, you know, like um, like the man who threw himself on the ground when he heard the the tire exploding, the the bus, yeah, and he jumped down the ground and then he, he ran away very quickly. That I saw in my early day in Colombia. And, and also yeah, many things. Um, the, the, the men and all the families that hide in the, under the bed um, at night when the guerrilla um, occupied the town, for example, and, and many other things. Yeah. Tilda, what about you? I mean, as, as an actor, and I should, you know, note that Tilda's been in three films this festival, and they could not be more different in terms of <laughs> films, filmmakers, and roles. So you're, in some ways, are always throwing yourself yourself into very different environments. But some are more alien than others, I imagine. So I'm wondering what being, you know, Joe's sort of fellow traveler on this adventure was like. It's uh, it's really my comfort zone. Of, of choice, I would say, this, this sense of being lost and not knowing what you're doing. 
Uh, it's a really um, sort of happy place for me. My happy place, we call it. Um, the, and and I think this, uh, yeah, because because what Joe does with his frame is he sets up this sort of free space, this sort of playground, um, into which when you step, you're a combination of very, very free, but also very peaceful. And that's, you know, that's a very, very, being a very idle person, that's a very uh, kind of fruitful place for me to be. Uh, but also talking of the fact that we were in Colombia and that we were both lost, um, that's incredibly productive. I mean, it really sharpens your ears being lost. You, you, you can't, you, can, you have no plan. And even though there was a certain amount of rigorous planning in terms of what we were, what particular curlicues of journey we were going to go on, we had to fix certain things. In terms of the energy of the shots, we tried to keep ourselves very free and open and every bird, every leaf of grass, every gust of wind was welcome. You know, there was no possibility of anything ever getting ruined by anything because everything was welcome. And that's a really, speaking as a non-actor, uh, as a, you know, sort of breathing prop, that's a really, really fruitful uh, arena to, to, to play in because you're just moving in the... We talked a lot, uh, Joe and I, about, about me moving as if I'm underwater. And that's really what it felt like. And also in terms of one's sense of sound, you know, when you're underwater, it's not that you can't hear anything. In fact, in a way, it's like a, something switches and you can hear really acutely all sorts of other things. Um, it was really like that. It was like whenever I stepped into his frame, I was, you know, all sorts of things switched off and all sorts of things switched on. So it was beautiful. Um. Yes, I, we, we shot on 35 millimeter film, so I, I like to let it run to the whole film, and that's 14 minutes, you know. So uh, the actors has to be really present, you know, because it's and, and not about memorizing the line, but about uh, interacting, you know, with the space, you know, at that moment and I and Tudor agree in the beginning that we're not gonna talk about character, not gonna talk about the background, you know. I don't know like um how long Jessica was in Colombia or how long her husband passed away or those information. Um so so this being, you know, just be there, you know, and we try to shoot chronologically. Um so because I didn't know what I want, uh, I I just say oh, yeah, let's try. And then we rehearse and then when we shot it, you know, it's uh, our DOP and the gaffer uh, quite making a quite open set. So that's like, you can walk around and very minimal lighting. Yeah, so that the actor can be. Yeah, and for the first take and then, you know, second take, oh, it's not right, you know. So, so Tilda and other people uh, show me you know, okay, this speed. So, so me, it's the whole thing is about the rhythm, 
Yeah, it's like breathing. It's like it's like building this animal, you know. Yeah. You've both talked about sound and about listening, and I wonder. If, I think we need to maybe spend a little bit more time on that, given the importance of sound in this film. I mean, you know, I think people often say that sound is half of cinema, but I think rarely do you really get a sense of how. Um, I think sound is so prominent in this film, and I wonder maybe Joe, you can talk a little bit about your work with your sound collaborators. I know you've worked with them for a long time. And and Tilda, I wanted to hear you talk about that incredible scene that comes early on in the film that I think, you know, is in the in the studio that I think is a key in a way that sort of conditions the audience to to listen. Yeah, yeah it's, it's based on this exploding head thing, and I was trying to get did that. You a, did you see a doctor when this happened, or was uh, this? Uh, uh, no. I, it was not that. <laughs> Is there a doctor in the house? <laughs> it's not that. No, but you feel comfortable actually, in hospital. Was, I so. feel comfortable. I, I feel like it's it's not a sound, by the way. It's it's an idea of the sound. You know, it's like I don't. Anyone had this symptom? See, it's 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 okay, right? It's not. You just lie there, <laughs> listening in the morning. You know, came in the morning and then, and then to the point that you can control it. You know. You know that when it's coming and when it's going, and and so I try to work with my sound designer to achieve this sound. It's like really like in 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 the film, you know, it's, it's metallic, it's uh, underwater. So that scene is is an accurate description, like yeah. what Jessica is trying to communicate. Right, and we went through all this library, sound library, um, special effects, and. Yeah, and and of course we use uh, others. That that the live sound is very important, and to heighten it, and to you know, to to give you a sense of the this awareness of life around. Yeah, and and it remind me, or it inspired also by by uh, during the trip, you know, in in Colombia, talking to people about their experience, you know, like. Uh, 15, 20 years ago, it was it was more violent, and people, you know, for example, if you are driving a car, and then there's a bang, you just like don't know what is that from a, a gunshot or a, a tire explosion or fireworks or bomb. You don't know. You just frozen, and you just anticipate. You know, you anticipate and you listen. You know, so. Tilda, do you want to say? But also, I'm. I'm also the other thing I was going to ask you is because as an actor on the set, you know, sound and image are often decoupled in terms of the actual making of the film. It's an illusion that brings them together. So you're actually working with imagined sounds for much of this film. The this, the um, the final scene was uh, was all imagined, um, quite properly, I think, in terms of the narrative, because it really is inside our heads. Um, but the scene in the, uh, in the, in the, with the engineer, I, I particularly love it because I, I honestly believe there's something in that scene that's really about uh, art. You know, that's what artists do. Uh, we say, hey, there's something in my head, and I don't know if I can ever explain to you what it is, but I'm going to try. And we say, okay, I'm here for it. 
tell me. And then you try and then you go. It's not quite that. It sounds different in my head. You go, okay. That's that whole sense of the attempt to be articulate and the failure, the constant failure to be articulate, I love so much and and I believe is sort of our trade. Um, and and so and it's very precise that scene, you know. It's I love this moment when she says it probably sounds different in my head well yeah <laughs> welcome to our world uh but the 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 fact that he is so open and then produces these sort of off the peg industrial uh uh you know body hit stomach in hoodie things uh and and actually that's the route to find this unique magical mystical sound i particularly love uh, but so that was practical in a way. Those two scenes, they are kind of bookends. That's very, very practical and very, you know, stomach hit when hoodie, uh, you know, customized. But but then the last scene is really was something that we we knew we were going to. That was the target. The whole arrow of the film was going towards. Um, and we knew that when we got there, there was going to be no sound in the room. And so we talked a lot about beforehand what, the, what those sounds might be. And, and as we were shooting, there was a little bit of Joey whispering. Um, but there was, it was really a sort of, sort of kinetic dance between Elkin, who plays Hanan, and I, as to what we might, and we were sort of like do-it-yourself telepathy, trying to figure out what you might be hearing. And, and of course, when there was no wind in the trees outside, that's the time to listen for the rain, which you know you're not going to be able to see. It was, a, it was an interesting piece of um, sort of forensic uh, mathematics. Uh, but it was, uh, yeah, that was the target we were always going for, that scene. And, and the, whatever had been gathered throughout the whole of the rest of the film was going to somehow land there because to all intents and purposes, this is a mystery film. It starts in the first frame with this question mark. What is this sound? And we knew that at the very end, very, very end, we were going to maybe provide an answer to that. Maybe let's talk about the answer. <laughs> um, the proposal, let's say. A proposal. Um, <laughs> So you've had s spacecraft in your other work. In Primitive, you had this, yeah. Is that... mm. <laughs> well, it's a mixture of uh, um, memories. Mm. And, and I feel like uh, that chart, you know, it, it just came during the writing and I, I felt natural uh, that, you know, it's, it's a combination of Jessica and... Ernan and me and others, you know, because in the sound there there was a mixture of um, her voice and reminiscing about her own memory and aching, and also the sound from the first recorded sound of human history, mm. you know, uh, recording music, a you know, song, you know, the French one, you know. So we we mix it there. So so it's a mixture of all this memory uh, with time collapse. So I was thinking like um, my my own idea of um, in, uh, infatuation with with uh, science fiction and and this um, levitation 
mm. anti-gravity and 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 it could be in the future it could be in mm. the past you don't know but but it's an idea you know it, it's it's not a how you say i grew up with the ghost story and also with uh science fiction of ray bradbury and mm. other other c clark asimov so all those illustration on the cover mm. you know right. so so it's a memory of the future mm-hmm. so so that that kind of it's like a gamble for me like whether it will fit because during the the covid um we spent a lot of time working months on that shot alone you know while the film already done you know so it it, it uh, we just found out you know just put in afterwards and yeah i don't think we have a whole lot of time left but i'd like to take one audience question uh you should pick no Okay, Tilda will pick. Okay, yeah, okay. You're standing up, so yes. It's virtually crawling onto the stage, this one. <laughs> a question about the search for sound, and sound is maybe the other of cinema, and how that relates to your search for another culture, another language with this film. Well, for me, that, that was a concern in the beginning, like whether I would understand or how properly I could transfer these feelings I, I have but um, but I'm always an outsider you know in, in Colombia and so for me just try um, how you say just to connect and and to listen and and in the end I just realized that it's um, it's the same you know it's not different from Thailand and others you know we have the same grief you know we have the same sadness happiness you know it's universal so i try to 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 do that you know just just rhythm and to to present the film uh, as as the way of jessica comes to term and embrace her her past because it seemed to me that she just um lost and try to connect yeah and then ernan the first one deliver the sound to her and the second one the second ernan also delivers sound to her in a different way you know but the second one is allow her to to stop you know because he stopped first you know that this is the film you know just go linear right abc but then ernan decide to refuse refuse to continue so he he stopped and then it allowed jessica to oh what do i do you know so i just sit there and listen you know and, and i think at that point uh, jessica or nano anything doesn't exist you know it's it's about cinema it's about how how one tracing image collecting image and sound and cinema become a body that collect this and and then when you just accept it you know, there's a lot of memories from from uh, from Tilda. You know, just like when you embrace the moment or, or the past, you know, accept it, and and then it is a true liberation happens. I'm really struck by your suggestion that sound is the other of cinema, um, and I, if that's true, and I'm not sure that I believe that's true, but let's say it is, then maybe what Joe's cinema is proposing is a really something quite revolutionary, an perception of what cinema is. And it might be to do with our relationship to vision, that 
there's a tiredness in a kind of montage, a kind of cutting and a kind of framing that we need uh, refreshing. And the route to refreshing that is through sound. I don't know, I just making that up on the spot, but uh, thank you for your question. I think, I think that was brilliant. <laughs> This episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast is brought to you by Music Box Films, presenting Lost Illusions, the César award-winning lush adaption of the classic André de Balzac novel. When an aspiring poet joins a cynical team of journalists in 19th century Paris, he soon discovers that the written word can be an instrument of both beauty and deceit. Now playing in select theaters, including Film at Lincoln Center.